Well, good morning, church. Got your Bibles in front of you now. We're going to turn to the book of Revelation, so get right to the last book of the Bible. Pretty easy to find, and we're going to be working through several verses um, in this incredible book. You know, I, I was just thinking that it's so hard to have a good pandemic without some Christians automatically thinking it's the apocalypse. And uh, every major world crisis over the last 2,000 years has prompted a similar response from uh, Christians of that day, wondering always in the midst of that crisis, is this it? Is Jesus about to break through the clouds? Is this the apocalypse? Is he going to bring it all to an end? We always seem in these times of world, of world tragedy and crisis to automatically go to this, this could be the moment that Jesus comes. And here's the thing, uh, Jesus would prefer it if you and I have that posture of readiness and watchfulness, whether the immediate signs are pointing to it or not. We need to always be ready. We need to always be watchful for the coming of the Christ. And we're talking in this series, we're concluding our, our series of this morning called The Crises of the Christ. This is message seven, and we're looking at the promise of the Christ. And this is the assurance. The promise of the Christ is the assurance that Jesus gave us that he would come back and usher in the complete and final fulfillment of his kingdom on earth, that Jesus would, in fact, answer the prayer that he taught us to pray, what's often called the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, when he said, and this is in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come is that hope for the final culmination and arrival of the kingdom of God in its fullness on earth. So as Christians, we are eagerly awaiting the moment that Jesus is going to make good on that promise. And in the meantime, that promise should be producing some very critical things in our lives. And the question for us today as we look at the text is, are those things being produced in me as a follower of Christ? Am I seeing these things in my life? And again, I've already um, let you know we're going to be in the book of Revelation. A couple other verses we're going to uh, put in there as well, but mostly in the book of Revelation. So uh, you have your Bibles open uh, there already. Here's what we're looking at in our notes, and it's on the screen. As a Christian, I eagerly await the promise of Christ's kingdom because it gives me hope. That's the first thing we want to look at. It gives me hope. And here's the phrase that we can say alongside of that. Jesus is coming back as king. Jesus is coming back as king. That's my hope. That's your hope. That's our confident assurance that we can have that no matter what's going on in our lives personally, no matter what's going on in the world around us, no matter how my life goes overall, over the course of the entire life, no matter what is happening, there's a, an incredible, mind-boggling, beautiful future ahead of me, ahead of all believers. And so we hear, this is, this is uh, let's look in the text, Revelation 1-7, we hear, behold, speaking of Jesus, he's coming with the clouds. And, and every eye will see him, 
Every eye will see him. Remember the first time he came, every eye didn't see him. In fact, most people didn't even know. In fact, only Mary and Joseph knew, and the shepherds only came because the angels went and told them. So it was a very low-key, obscure birth. His arrival into the world was not noticed, except by a very few number of people. But not, not this second time. Uh, behold, he's coming with the clouds. He's going to come out of the sky. Every eye is going to see him. Notice, even those who pierced him, those who have been hostile toward Christ, those who crucified him. And, it, and, and all tribes of the earth, notice it says, all tribes, all peoples of the earth are going to wail on account of him. Why are they going to wail? Because they rejected his gospel. Because they, they, they said no to his offer of salvation. They rejected his preaching and his life, his gospel. So they're going to wail at his coming. They're going to weep and mourn. He's not coming the way he came the first time. If you have your Bibles, flip over again to Revelation 19. If you have an analog Bible, we're going to hear the pages turning. If you have it on your phone, on an app, or an iPad, I wish they had the sounds so that when you were moving to Revelation 19, we'd still hear it. They could do that. They could put that in the app, couldn't they? We'd hear those pages turning. Revelation 19. 11 to 16 is like the whole passage. I'm not going to read all of it, but you can read it later. It's so encouraging. This is the way Jesus is coming back. Then I saw, this is John saying, he's getting the vision. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Remember the first time he came? Came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Symbol of peace. Prince of peace is coming. He's preaching peace. He's preaching salvation. Now, listen, donkey set aside, white horse. He's coming as a warrior. I saw heaven open, behold a white horse, the one sitting on it, this is Jesus, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. That's the way he's coming back. Again, read the rest of that passage later. This is our hope. We can't have hope in anything else. Our hope must be in Jesus Christ. The hope for this world is not in anything else. It is only in Jesus Christ. The world tries desperately to find hope in almost anything else. There's so many other things that we could talk about here, but uh, generally speaking, it all comes down to this, that humanity's best hope, those who don't believe in Jesus, humanity's best hope is humanity. They believe, humanity believes, that it is its own best hope that, that we have the ingenuity, that we have the wherewithal, that we have the strength inside of us to make it through whatever. We're resilient. We're human beings. We've done it before. We can do it again. The vaccines are being touted right now as a, as a medical miracle that it could be done this fast, that we're so great that we've produced these vaccines. And I'll admit, it's amazing the short period of time, the number of vaccines, the results that are being seen. No issue with any of that. It's going to help with this temporary situation, this pandemic that we're in. But a vaccine is not the hope of the world. It's merely helping us with the current crisis. It's amazing. It's awesome. But it's not hope. Humanity's hope is in humanity. 
We even think about if you, if you just even narrow it down to humanity would, would say that our hope is in the goodness of people and in the inherent goodness of people. We hear, we hear about this a lot, and if you're on social media, you read Facebook, and you see these, oh, shucks, these so feel-good type stories that people tell, and a little tear, and people put their emojis on it, and share it with their friends, and this is restoring our hope in humanity. Look how awesome people can be. And for every, listen, you're on social media, you know, for every one story like that, there's nine that make human beings look like idiots. I'm not wrong about that, am I? So much more negativity there. I'll admit, though, some people are genuinely kind and altruistic, but that doesn't mean that I should have hope in people, that I should believe in humanity. The reality is most people are selfish. Most people would run you over for toilet paper if it came right down to it. That's the challenge that we face. What the Word of God teaches us, we know this as Christians, what the Word of God teaches us is not the inherent goodness of people, but their sinfulness. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now, if, if you're just reading that for the first time and interpreting that, let, does that leave any wiggle room whatsoever for something other than what it says? It's, it's all-encompassing. Everyone is sinful. All of humanity is depraved. Our sin has separated us from God, and we do not have it in us to repair the chasm that has been created between us and God. There is no hope in humanity. We cannot have hope in one another. Human beings, us, okay, throughout our entire history, human beings are the perpetrators of genocides. We, we exploit vulnerable people. We are the ones who are guilty of racism and, and sexism and ageism and all the other isms, all the isms were created by us and practiced by us. You say, well, I'm, I don't exploit people. I'm not racist. I, I'm not guilty of genocide. Well, even if you're not directly hurting others, isn't it true that we often stand by in silence and by our ambivalence, we show that our own comfort is more important than alleviating the suffering of another or their emancipation? It's a vain hope indeed that we would place our hope in humanity. Our hope must be in Christ. Our hope must be in His gospel, in His kingdom alone. It must be. Our hope must be in the cross of Christ. Our hope must be in the empty tomb and the power of the resurrection. We have no other hope. Jesus coming back as King is the only hope that this world has. So as a Christian, I eagerly await the promise of Christ's kingdom because it gives me hope. Jesus is coming back as king. And secondly, 
It increases my faith. It increases my faith. And this is the thing that I can say. The signs point to it happening soon. The signs, they're, they're pointing to the soon coming of the kingdom of God. And the, the greatest challenge, we have the book of Revelation open in front of us right now. And, and if you were to survey 100 Christians and say, what book of the Bible would you like to study? 100 of them would say, I'd like to study Revelation. People love this book. They love it because it's awesome, and they read it, and the images, and it's grand, and it's spectacular, and they read it because they, and, and they're, so, they're so awestruck by it because at the end of the day, we read it, and we go, I have no idea what it means. That's why we always want to study it. What exactly is being spoken of here? The greatest challenge is we even get the book of Revelation open to, to read it and, and use it as part of this study is, is asking the question, to what age does this apply? How do we interpret this book? And there's various views on this. Some people approach the book of Revelation. They believe it was about the church's immediate situation in the first century when John wrote it. Therefore, it's history. It's already happened. Fun to read, but it's all already taken place. That's one view of this. Others, that it's merely um, symbolic, and it certainly has a lot of symbolism in it. There's a lot of, of allegory and figurative language. But some believe that it's merely symbolic, that it, that it merely teaches principles for Christians to follow, but that it's not literally going to take place or that it's not literally happening. Some believe that it's, it's all future, that none of this has happened yet and that we're waiting all of it to actually happen. And as we approach the book of Revelation, I would suggest that it'd be better for us not just the book of Revelation, but all of the apocalyptic literature. If you're talking about um, the book of Ezekiel, the latter part of Daniel, or the apocalyptic passages that we read in the Gospels, as we approach any of it, all of it, it's to see that the author is writing, and in this case, John, John is writing for sure out of his current context. He sees as he's writing that this isn't just all future. This applies to the church today. For John in the first century, he's seeing this as being very relevant to him and to the church. And then we should do the same. We should read this through John's eyes, and we should see these spectacular visions, and we should see the unseen spiritual battle that is happening right now. A spiritual battle that's perpetually being waged. And as such, there are principles for us to learn and apply, all the while awaiting the final fulfillment, the consummation of the prophecies at the end of the age. And so, yes, we read it historically, and we see that there's some benefit to putting it in its context and seeing how John saw it and how the churches saw it. Yes, there's imagery here that we need to see and understand from a principle standpoint, and we need to apply that to our lives right now. And yes, there are still uh, things in, book, in the book of Revelation that are, have yet to come to pass that we need to anticipate and wait for. The other notable uh, thing about this book is the blessing attached to the reading and study of it. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed is the one who who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Our faith should be increasing as a result of hearing and, and studying and keeping of the words that we read here, doing what John has said 
uh, through the Holy Spirit. And all signs point to it happening according to the book. All signs point to it happening. Verse 1 says soon. Verse 3 says the time is near. And that is to say we need to read all of this with an understanding that it's going to happen imminently. Now, our our challenge is we only get to live on this earth around 80 years, uh, give or take. And um, and so we, we think that we think 80 years is a long time. A um, hundred years is a long time. And, and certainly we wouldn't describe something um, happening in a hundred years' time as being something soon. And here's, here's John writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, receiving the, these revelations, and he's being told that all of these things that he's going to get, which, by the way, he wrote to us 1,900 years ago, and all of these things are being described as near or soon. And we go, like, not by our reckoning, but certainly by the reckoning of the Lord who has all of history in view, and however long human beings have occupied this earth, this small portion over here that are called the last days, this small portion, all falls into the category of near or soon. That too should build my faith. So then we look at Revelation 6 through 19, this chunk in the middle of the book, these chapters which really describe the wildest and most mind-boggling pictures of what's happening, what's happened, what's happening, and what will happen in the future. And for example, now, again, we're looking for signs that are going to increase our faith. Revelation 9, 20, and 21 describes, here's some details of the last days. There are going to be plagues. There's going to be false worship. There's going to be murders, there's going to be sorceries, there's going to be sexual immorality, there's going to be theft, there's going to be failure to repent. In chapters 12 and 13, we add a couple of, um, of uh, things to that, widespread deception, hostility toward God. Revelation 18.24 adds persecution and, and the martyrdom of believers. And when you look at that list and you go, that's today. Look at that list. That's today. There's plagues. We're living through one. There's, there's false worship. There's murders. There's sorceries. There's sexual immorality. There's all of this. That's today. But the thing is, John's writing this in his day, receiving the vision going, that's today. And everyone from the apostle John at the end of the first century to you and me in the 21st century, everyone in between has said the same thing. That's today. The list has always described what it's like on earth. This is the characteristic of humanity for the last 2,000 years and before. And so I see that, and that's a sign. These are signs. These are going to happen. These are the last days. This is what's characterizing all of the last days. And that too should build my faith. Nothing here is taking God by surprise. But I'm also aware that no matter what's happening in the world, as I read this book, as I read about these terrible things, as I hear about all that's going to happen in the world, that as a Christian, I'm eternally secure in Christ through it all. I'm not going to worry about any of this. And and, and what's happened in this latest pandemic is that some of the Christians have kind of turned up the volume on their panic over the last days. Even even in some of these posts that I'll see and some of the things people are saying, it just seems like they're fearful about it all. 
even being a lot of talk about the mark of the beast. About a half dozen times or more in the book of Revelation, we read about the mark of the beast, some kind of identifying marker, a number of some kind that gets assigned to people that identifies them with the beast and not with Christ. I heard early in the pandemic that it was masks, so, you know, I don't have one on, y'all do. Then I heard later on it was the vaccine. Did you hear that one? That the vaccine is the mark of the beast. So ridiculous. The mark of the beast here. Listen, listen to what Jesus said. I'm going to come back to this. But listen, listen to what Jesus said. In, this is in Mark 13, which is an apocalyptic chapter in Mark's gospel. Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. Notice what it says. Jesus is saying this. If possible, the elect. And Jesus says, But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. Now, here's the thing. You look at the way Jesus said this, the, 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 the conditional say, statement that he makes here, if possible, to deceive the elect, if possible, and Jesus is, say, is saying it in such a way that he, he's fully acknowledged it's not possible. You cannot deceive the elect. You cannot lead a Christian out from their salvation to, to receive the mark of the beast. That, by the way, that's how I know the vaccine is not the mark of the beast. Because I know full well that I love Jesus and that I am his and I got the vaccine. So it's clearly not the mark of the beast. See where I'm going with that? You got the math? It's not the mark of the beast. It's a vaccine for an illness, period. And so Jesus is saying here, it's not possible for true believers to be led astray. Jesus is saying, I've told you all these things beforehand. I've given you all the information so that your faith can increase as you see all these things happening. In essence, God is saying, here's what I've done, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm going to do. Relax. If you love me, if you've confessed your sin, if you've looked to Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, you're in. Nothing's going to change that. Your faith can rest, your faith can increase in knowing that the kingdom of God is coming. Signs point to it happening soon. Rest in that, Christian. Rest in it. No panic. Third, the promise of Christ's kingdom builds my endurance. I can make it to the end. Please understand the irony of me preparing this message on Friday while the provincial government is making yet another ex announcement about lockdowns, and I'm sure, like many of you, um, my frustration level was increasing um, at hearing again about further restrictions, and yet I'm having to write a message through gritted teeth on Friday afternoon saying, I can make it to the end, you know? And really, honestly, at that moment, trying to convince myself that I really can make it to the end. Well, in setting up the book, John mentions, and this is in verse 9 of chapter 1, he mentions patient endurance. There it is. Patient endurance as this common characteristic of the brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, if you are a Christian, 
A defining characteristic of you as a Christian is patient endurance. And so the question is, are you enduring patiently? Again, maybe not a fair weekend to ask this, but are you enduring patiently in anticipation of the coming of the kingdom? Now, impatience, the opposite of this, impatience produces some things in our lives that are not very Christian and, 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 and we shouldn't want to manifest in our lives at all. Let me give you these. I, I wrote down six of these. So impatience produces, these are in no particular order, impatience produces frustration with God and frustration with my circumstances. Uh, Secondly, impatience produces anger. Often the frustration actually just tips over into anger, and that anger could be expressed at myself, at others, at God. Uh, It's not a healthy anger. There is a healthy anger about sin, but uh, anger about my circumstances, that's not helping anyone. Uh, Thirdly, uh, frustration and anger can also lead to a complaining spirit. And if uh, the people around you were to describe how you're going through this pandemic, would they describe you as someone who's going through it with grace? Or would they say that you're going through it with a complaining spirit? Uh, Fourthly, um, we can get to a place when we're impatient of discouragement and despair. Again, because we're allowing the circumstances to dictate the terms. And then um, this can also lead to fatigue and weariness. Because I'm so impatient, I'm carrying the circumstance with me, something God doesn't want us to do, and that's just wearing us down. And there's enough right now wearing us down. Our impatience doesn't need to add to it. And then uh, finally, impatience will lead to me taking control from God and resisting His will for me. And listen, all of that is antithetical to the Christian life. None of that should be in the life of a Christ follower who's close to Jesus and has the Holy Spirit controlling, giving them self-control. And so, are you enduring patiently in anticipation of the coming of the kingdom? And so now we have these these seven letters. And if you know anything about Revelations, chapters 2 and 3 are these seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And, and Jesus is dictating these seven letters to, to these seven churches uh, through John, and he says to one church, and again, we're just trying to punch the point of how important patient endurance is. He says to one church, uh, Revelation 2, 2 and 3, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. This is Jesus looking at a church and saying, you're patiently enduring. He's commending them. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Love that. Then he says to another church, this is uh, verse 19, same chapter, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance. To a third church, he says this in in 310, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, check this promise promise out, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, three out of the seven churches get commended for being patient and enduring through all trials. So obviously, this is pretty critical for us as Christians. And yeah, we're in a time of suffering, and it is a time of difficulty right now. And how we go through this as believers is so important. It's related to what we're going to talk about in the last point about our our witness. But what do believers and unbelievers see in you as we're going through this? What do your neighbors see? What do your unsaved family members see? What do your coworkers see? 
Are they seeing a Christian who's confident in the future, confident in what God is doing in the world? Or do they see someone who's frustrated and complaining and not patient at all and not enduring it all through it? If that's what unbelievers are seeing in you, that needs to be turned around. You need to have much more of an attitude of, I can make it through this. You see, we can patiently endure because we know what's coming in the future. We know what's happening with the kingdom of God. We know what God's up to. So chafing against trials, whining about circumstances, resisting the will of God, expecting special treatment from God, it's not what Christians who patiently endure are to be doing. When you're doing that, you're demonstrating that your eyes are more on the things of this world, more on your own life, than, than that your eyes are on Jesus. Your priority is about eternity. You know, Jesus said this, one of the apocalyptic passages in, in Matthew, the primary one is Matthew 24, and in that passage, Jesus said, this is Matthew 24, 13, he said, the one, uh, the, it's the one who endures to the end that will be saved. The one who endures to the end is going to be saved. The way that you're really going to know that, that you're a follower of Jesus Christ is because you're standing there on the last day. You made it through every trial. You tenaciously hung on to Jesus, and he hung on to you the entire time. Do you have that enduring spirit inside of you? All right, finally this. The promise of Christ's kingdom compels my witness. Everyone needs to know this. Everyone needs to know this. We have this, this commission, the great commission from Jesus to tell everyone about him, to invite, and this is a phrase we've used a lot here, to invite people to come and see, to come to this place, to see the worship and experience the people and meet the people and hear the word of God. Just come and see this uh, a pandemic, the restrictions have thrown um, a wrench into that for the next four weeks. We're not going to be able to come and see, at least not here, but we can still invite on the live stream. Come and see. Come join my church right from the comfort of your own living room. Just tune in and watch. Come and see. But come and see isn't enough because not everybody's ever not everybody's going to come and see. Sometimes you have to go and tell. Sometimes you have to get up from where you are and go to the place where the sinners are and tell them about Jesus. This doesn't happen to me very often, but this week I had two opportunities to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who are not yet followers of Christ, and I was able to share the gospel with them. Two opportunities this week to go and tell about Jesus. Neither one of them at this point has yet given their life to Christ that I know of, but we can pray for them that God would open up their eyes to receive the gospel. And so we have this mission from Christ to, come and, to tell people to come and see, to go and tell them. And, and here's, here's how Revelation fits into that. Revelation 1, 1 and 2, right at the start of the book. The revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ, this is where the name of the book comes from, the revelation, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Christ, even to all that he saw. So the whole point about this is, is telling. 
God told the angel, the angel told John, John is telling us, and we're to tell everyone. Down in, in verse 3, we saw the same things, that this is, this is about taking this prophecy and telling people. John was told, down in verse 9, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. John knew that he wasn't supposed to just write this all down and just seal it up, put it on a shelf somewhere in Revelation 22.10. He said, don't, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Don't just, just don't write it down and then you know, put it up on the shelf where it looks pretty. Get it open. Get it out there. Let people hear it. People need to hear the gospel. They need the word of God. They need the hope that this book provides them. And so let me ask then, in what way are you letting people in your life know about Jesus? How are you communicating his kingdom? Are you delivering the hope that people need right now? People need this hope right now. People are hurting, fearful, they're angry, they're polarized like they've never been polarized before. People are struggling, many, many people have taken huge financial hits. So many are in anguish emotionally and mentally. Everyone's hurting over the loss of relationship and social contact. Everyone is wondering about the future. Everyone. Everyone around you is wondering what this all means. And you know. You know. You know how this all turns out. You and I know what this means. Why would, we, why would we keep that information to ourselves when we have a world, a country, a province, a city that's dying to hear this? It's all in this book. It's what God has done in this world. It's what God is doing. It's what he's going to do. It's about his son, Jesus Christ. It's about bringing an end to sin and death in this world. So be bold. Tell them. Write emails. Have conversations. Make FaceTime calls. Book Zoom meetings. Do whatever you need to whatever you need to do to tell them to get the message out. Write text. Put it on social media. You can't get together with someone outside of your own household now. Apparently, we're not allowed to do that. But now, of course, you could pretend you have children and stand at a playground and have a conversation six feet apart with masks on. Tell people about Jesus. This pandemic, tell everyone that this pandemic is what has happened, is happening, and will happen in a world that is heading for a cataclysmic end. It's a sign. This, this isn't the final pandemic, and this isn't even the worst of the pandemics, not by a long shot. 
There will be more pandemics and plagues, and there will be worse ones. Tell them that God has already revealed all of this. Tell them the words of Revelation 22, 17, right near the end of the Bible. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The promise of God's kingdom compels my witness to those who do not yet have Christ. So the questions, do you have hope? Is your faith in, increasing? Is your endurance growing? Are you witnessing to who Jesus is? As you and I eagerly await the promise of God's kingdom, these things should be seen in us as Christians. It should be the character and fabric of our lives. Jesus experienced all of these crises that we've talked about throughout this series, all of these events for our sake, that we would know him. And we preach Christ. We preach Christ, the water of life, to thirsty souls. Let's pray together. Father, we are uh, grateful for the revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for giving us this amazing assurance that we can have in you. On behalf of all of, all of the Christians who are watching, who are here in the room, who are hearing this word, God, we say thank you for giving us the confidence, saving us, showing us, giving us the words of life. And God, I pray for those who do not yet know. I pray for, for those who heard the conversation this week about Christ. I pray for all of those represented by all the relationships in this room. God, that we would be faithful to tell them this world desperately needs the hope that we hold right here in our hands and in our hearts. So God, do a work that will surprise us. Do a work that will glorify your name. Thank you for Christ. All that he's done, all that he's doing, and all that he will do. We pray in his name.